You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, North Can Chapel. Good morning, those of you guys watching online. Glad you guys are here with us this morning. Um, we're going to close out our Holy Sexuality series this morning. I think most of you guys know that. This has been a kind of a six-week journey through a really tough topic. And um, I just want to tell you, kind of right up front, this, just my heart for you as, as your pastor or just some guy you're watching on TV sitting at home on your couch. That's fine. I want to say thank you. Um, as a, as a pastor to a church, uh, it's a really interesting relationship sometimes, right? Because I don't know what you're thinking while you're sitting there. I don't know what's going on in your mind. I don't know what's happening in your heart. And so just from me to you, I just want to say thank you for trusting us as a staff, as teaching pastors and elders, just as we've walked through these, these uh, last six weeks. We're not done yet, although the series will conclude. There's a lot of work yet to be done. And so... If this is your first week uh, at North Canton Chapel, it's going to feel like dropping into like the last 10 minutes of a movie, okay? And so I'd kind of want to like play catch up a little bit. So just three minutes, just where we've been and then where we're going. So we started off week one of this teaching series, Genesis through Revelation. We talked through six biblical principles for human sexuality and basically that Marriage is a lifelong covenant, one flesh union between a man and a woman. But even more importantly, all of human sexuality points to Jesus, the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. That's the point of marriage and sexuality. Week two, we got to John 8, which is this powerful, beautiful scene that I love where Jesus, much to the chagrin of the religious elite at the time, platformed a known sexual sinner. And then pardoned her and said, now go and sin no more. And the bottom line that week was, to borrow a phrase from Bruce Miller, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's a beautiful thought. Week three, we were joined by Lori and Matt Krieg, a husband and wife, who talked about their own journey through sexual brokenness and how God redeems those things. Lori and her same-sex attraction that she puts before the Lord and says, here, Lord, you deal with it. You help me through this. You be enough. And Matt, her husband, through a debilitating addiction to pornography and how Jesus brought healing there. Week four, with the longest sermon I have ever preached in my life, by the way, so thank you again for holding in. It was 55 minutes, so anyhow, that was the deep dive into these seven texts that talk exclusively, specifically about same-sex attraction and homosexuality, two laws from the Old Testament, two scenes from the Old Testament, and three places in the New Testament. Last week, our care and counseling pastor, John Mangrum, did a great job, I thought, week five, talking about how marriage is much more rich than we have reduced it to, and that singleness or celibacy is not a curse to be pitied, but a calling to support and a oneness to pursue. So now everything we're talking about this morning is built on those five weeks. And so we need to understand that this has been pretty cumulative. This morning's going to feel a little thin if it's the only one you're catching. And so my word to you is maybe you want to go back and catch up online, that'd be fine. So here's where we're going this morning. 
We've got, I think, another more important final question to ask. But before we get there, do you know one of the greatest um, hazards or risks associated with a six-week teaching series on sexuality? The greatest risk is to assume that we're done. To imagine that we just, like, we cross some imaginary finish line. To imagine that, you know, well, we said all that we need to say, and so now that we've said it, we can move on. And that's a little bit of a misnomer because this is not the it that needs to be done. We need to remember that Jesus has not called us to make statements. Jesus has called us to make disciples. Preaching and teaching, as necessary as they are to the health of the church, these are a means to an end. We can't wipe our homiletical hands and then just say, like, well, it's all been done. If this series has been of any value to you, you've got to take all that, weeks one through five, and then you've got to do something with it. And so here's the question. How should we, as a church, cascade a biblical sexual ethic in our world? How do we take all that and turn it inside out? Put another way, what now? Where do we go from here? And so to answer that, uh, we're going to take the next 30 minutes or so and walk through five commitments that I want to call us to that will help us as a church to be a people who are committed to a gospel sexual ethic in a world that might not be. There are way more than five commitments, but I'm going to give us these five because, at least in my mind, where we are now, uh, these, these are the most pressing. Commitment number one, commit to compassion. Something that strikes me is when I read the Gospels that Jesus seems surprisingly safe to the sexually broken in his world. But 2,000 years later, the church, by contrast, is often a place of fear and judgment and distance and anxiety and even hate, especially to the sexual minorities in our world. So how do we close the gap between who Jesus is, who we are named after as Christians, how do we close the gap between how he treats sexually broken and how we are often perceived to be. There's this really incredible scene at the end of Matthew chapter 9, which we'll get to in just a second. Quick little bit of context, though. The way Matthew is laid out. Matthew's gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's this really familiar teaching of Jesus. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest recorded sermon that Jesus has, and it's where we get a lot of great teaching. 5, 6, and 7. Right after that, chapters 8 and 9, is when we see Jesus doing some miraculous healing. This is Walking on the sea, this, or storming the, calming the storm of the sea. This is healing blind men. This is Jesus doing amazing things after he taught amazing things. And by the time we get to Matthew 9, though, we get a really important look under the hood at Jesus' motivation. Why is Jesus doing all this stuff? Here's what it says, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So this is Matthew's commentary. This is what Jesus did. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly 
as opposed to pray flippantly. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So first, what does Jesus see here? Well, the obvious answer is he sees the crowds. Okay, you grammarians, it's the direct object if you need that. But looking past that, how does he see the crowds? And Matthew, as if he's peering into Jesus' mind, gives us two words. He sees them as harassed and helpless. It's a Greek figure of speech that means mangled and thrown to the ground. Those are two very crucial words. Jesus has the spiritual wherewithal to see the individual past the issue. When most of the world sees battle lines and positions, Jesus sees hurting, mangled image bearer thrown to the ground. That's what Jesus sees. And he breaks. Quick question, how would our relationships be different? And I'm not just talking about the sexual minorities that you might know or have in your family or in proximity to you, people you love deeply. How would our relationships be different if we shifted from people whose version of brokenness annoys me to people whose version of brokenness breaks me too? Seeing that, how does Jesus respond? It's interesting that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us first what Jesus felt. This beautiful, did you catch it? He felt compassion. It's this beautiful glimpse into the emotional life of our Lord. A very unexpected picture for us evangelicals who have been constantly told our whole lives to be suspicious of our emotions. Don't trust your feelings. Jesus has a very strong emotional reaction. He says, compassion. That word compassion is another Greek expression that means to be moved in the deep places of your gut. It's a physical response. It's the polar opposite of apathy, and it's not pity. It's holy compassion for people. When you see your world, what do you feel? It's a very important question that I don't know that you've ever been asked. When you see your world, what do you feel? When you see a gay pride parade on TV, when you're behind somebody at a stoplight and they've got a rainbow bumper sticker, when you hear of somebody else who's caught in addiction for pornography, what do you feel? Do you feel anger? Do you feel annoyance? Do you feel self-righteousness? Here's something I've got to face, and this is me being personal. I am way better at being a recipient of Jesus' compassion than I am being a representation for Jesus' compassion. You know why Christians are so often thought of as hypocrites? It's because we're really thankful for grace until we have to give it. But then Jesus does something interesting, and you caught it. First, he switches metaphors from a flock to a field. In verse 37, he says, he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's a surprisingly optimistic spiritual assessment of our world, right? Because I'm sitting here going, no, Jesus, it seems like the world's going to hell. This is a terrible place, Jesus. I should just stay here, right? And Jesus says, oh, church, I want you to see what I see. They're stuck in sin and they need a shepherd. And what's your role to play? Answer, verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly. 
For what? What should you pray for? Pray that everything goes back to normal? That's not what he says. Pray that the country... No. What's he say? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest would send laborers. Who's that? We don't get to hide behind bunkers and walls in our safe little cushioned homes. Mm -mm. This isn't a government thing. This isn't a legal thing. Sin, lostness, brokenness, whatever your particular version of it is, because we've all got it, these are spiritual things, and they need a spiritual solution. This is a gospel thing. And so where are we? It starts with broken hearts and compassionate hearts. What's Jesus know that I often forget? Prayer kills apathy. See what Jesus is doing here? He's taking all of what he said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the greatest sermon ever, and he's taking everything he did in chapters 8 and 9, and then he's putting skin on it, saying, I don't want words, I want workers. I don't want sermons, I want sent ones. I don't want ink on a page, I want people in the world. And I believe that when Jesus said, I see the harvest, I believe with his eternal omniscient, omnipresent eye, he didn't just see the fields of first century Israel. He looked all the way down the rolling hills of time and he saw every field between then and here all the way to 2022 North Canton. And so the same question he asks these guys now is the same question he's asking you now. Are you in? Can you do this thing? Now, what in the world does it have to do with sexual wholeness in a broken world? Here's what I see. We have been taught to see our world as an enemy to be feared rather than a people to be rescued. We have been taught to see our world as angry and vindictive rather than harassed and helpless. And so we've cultivated not hearts of compassion, but spirits of contention. We're angry when we should be sorrowful. We've posted when we should have prayed, and we've run away when we should run toward. And so we pull back when we should lean in. Here's my point. You will never impact your world for Jesus until you see people like Jesus. Commit to compassion. That's the biggie, and that's why we had to start there. But if we're going to really do that, I think for a lot of us, something else is needed. I know something else is needed for me, because I can't just throw that out there and say, be nice. (laughs) I need something else. Commitment number two, become a learner. Become a learner. Ephesians chapter four. This has been reverberating in my head for like the last two months, just so you know. I've never gotten over this passage. Ephesians chapter four, in verse 11, says this. And he, that is God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. These are like offices in the church. He gave the church those. Why? Verse 12. To equip the saints. Who's that? Us. It's not just guys in stained glass or statues. It's you. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Equipping the saints, that's us, can mean a lot of things. And so I want to give you three ways you can become a learner. First, and most important, I think, learn from this book. You cannot have a conversation about human sexuality without a deep commitment to biblical rigor. You've got to know what you believe, and you've got to know why you believe it. A rapidly sexualized and secularizing culture will not tolerate unequipped Christians. 
You should know that there are only seven texts in the Bible that, only de that deal exclusively with homosexuality. You should know what they say and what they don't say. You should know how Jesus handled the issue of sexuality in Matthew 19 when it was presented to him. We didn't have time for that in this series, so that's your homework. You go read Matthew 19. John talked about it last week, but you got some more work to do. You should know that marriage is a whole lot more than what we've reduced it to, and we should grieve over that, I think. As a married person, I feel that. And that singleness is not a problem to solve, but a calling to support. Here's what I'm saying. Cascading a biblical sexual ethic is probably going to mean that you've got to dig deeper than you've done before. Where do I start? Great question. Glad you asked. Second way you can become a learner is you can read books about gospel sexuality. Okay? You need to be equipped. I've read, I don't even know, like a mountain of books in preparation for this series. I lost count. Human sexuality is obviously an intimidating topic. And so to, um, to help you out, to get you started, we created a list of 13 books. This is an Amazon idealist is what it's called. Some of these are books that we've referenced um, all throughout the course of this series. These are books that our staff has read together here at the chapel. These are books that our elder board has had access to and has read together. And I just want to push it out to you, okay? All 13 of these books, just so you know, all of the authors have arrived at the conclusion that we have as a church that marriage is designed by God as an exclusive one flesh union between a man and woman for life, okay? So I just want to let you know where they've arrived. You can get that list, head to mtchapel.com slash resources. Every one of these books is written in a tone that is helpful, that is empathetic, that is kind. You're not going to get like ammo for the cannon, and that's important. Okay, so you can go check these books out. If you're watching online this morning, Matt, our online community pastor, is going to drop a link um, in the comment thread for you. Third way to position yourself as a learner, and I think this is probably the hardest, Become a learner by learning people. We've said all throughout this series that human sexuality is less about issues and more about individuals. It's less about policy and it's more about people. But here's the rub. Issues are easier than individuals, aren't they? Policies are neater than people. Why is that? I think because we instinctively know that if we're going to really love others and learn from others, it's going to be messy. We don't like that. It means drawing near to others, not pushing away. It means asking questions before making statements. It means I've got to do what Jesus did. I've got to become incarnational. What does that mean? Quick little test for fun. Okay? There's three places in the New Testament that said the Son of Man came. Okay? Three places that start off like that. And some of you are already having little red flags go off. First one the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, right? That's one. It's a good one. Very important. The second one, kind of like it, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, those are Luke and, and Mark. There's the third one that nobody mentions. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they looked at him and called him a friend of sinners. Why is that significant? The first two talk about why he came. To give his life as a ransom for many, to seek and save the lost. That's us. The third one talks about how he came. This is the mission. This is the method. Jesus was with sinners 
A lot. <laughs> it was his witness that drew the ire of the religious elite, but drew out the curiosity of the harassed and the helpless. And so the question's got to be, who are we with? Who do we hang out with? Commitment number three. And this one is a tough one, I think. Commitment number three, adjust your expectations. Here's what I mean. I know that there are some of you, because there's some of me that feels this way, with this conversation and a good many others, you kind of close our eyes and wistfully imagine a different time when the culture was more sympathetic to the things of Christ. You feel sad, you feel angry, you feel tired, you're frustrated. There's no such thing as a wrong or invalid emotion. Those emotions are important. Why do you feel that way? Listen to those emotions. Those emotions are good. They're telling you something. There's something deep down that I need to confront in myself. There's an unwillingness. It's hard. And if we're not careful, those emotions can cause us to pull back, to retreat, to want to hide. I recently read an article um, about trees in a greenhouse. There were these trees that were positioned in this giant greenhouse, and they were placed next to the right kind of plants. They had the right surroundings. They had the right temperature. They had the right soil. And scientists like over-engineered these trees to be like the perfect tree. Like there was, these are going to grow. They're going to produce fruit. It's going to be amazing. But something happened. The trees kept falling over. They never could figure out why. They never reached maturity. They'd grow for a little while, and then they couldn't figure out why. And then someone realized, they're in the greenhouse, the nutrients are right, the soil is right, the temperature's right, the surroundings are right. Do you know what they didn't have there in the greenhouse? Wind. Their roots never grew strong because they never had to. The greenhouse, designed for comfort, was making them weak. Do you see my point? I think there's a tremendous parable for the church in there. A few words I want to offer you from 1 Peter. These should be familiar because we were there just a couple of months ago. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I love the old King James. Think it not strange. Or if I had to paraphrase, adjust your expectations. In his book, Think It Not Strange, subtitled, Navigating Trials in the New America, David Mathis writes this. For 350 years, the church on American soil has enjoyed relatively little affliction for her fidelity to the scriptures. This nation, though, is an anomaly in church history. And those days are passing more quickly than many of us expected, he continues. For now, deluded by American history, we are prone to think it's strange. We are surprised. Give us our country back. But angry, desperate reactions only show how out of step we are with the tenor of the New Testament. Entitlement and resentment, and he's talking about Christians there, reveal heart foreign to the reality of a better country that is a heavenly one, Hebrews eleven sixteen. 
Spiritual greenhouse is a fantasy world, guys. We've never lived in a spiritual greenhouse. The rising winds of the world will test your roots, and we've got two options, either grow up or fall over. Bluntly, here's what this means for sexuality. If you choose to hold to a traditional, historical, biblical view of human sexuality and marriage, that being a lifelong covenantal one-flesh union between one man and one woman, you will be a minority. Now, here's why that's important to recognize. Not so we can hang our heads in shame, not so we can adopt some kind of victim persecution complex, whatever. Here's why that's important. As soon as you are done being surprised by the world, you can start loving the world. This is why Peter says, think it not strange, and then a couple verses around it, he says, love earnestly. This is probably going to mean more tension than most of us are used to. And I feel the need to alert you to that. Commitment number four, embrace the tension. Embrace the tension. Don't run from it. When John wrote his gospel and he wanted to introduce Jesus, he had a way of doing it. And he introduced Jesus right from the onset with tension. We talked about our tensions, that here there are some of us who are oriented toward grace. We're just like, I just don't want to offend anybody. I just want to be nice. Your social life is great if you just live by grace all day long. Some of us are truth-oriented by nature, and we're like, well, I don't really care who, uh, but i got to be over here. I can't give this thing up. Here is how John introduces Jesus. Take a look in John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Not grace or truth. And then down to verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. Grace, God's unmerited favor for lost people. That's us. Truth, God's justice, his wrath, his need to punish sinners. Wait, that's also us. John's writing is more than just good poetry. He's actually referring way back to Exodus 34, which talks about God Without the word becoming flesh, God, back in Exodus, introduced the exact same way. Here's the point. What's true about God in all of time is true of Christ in the New Testament. Jesus lives in this tension between grace and truth because he's God in the flesh. And the Gospels bear that out, don't they? We see this all the time with Jesus. New Testament author and scholar Preston Sprinkle says it this way. I mean, this is just beautiful to me. Jesus hung out with prostitutes but he never affirmed prostitution. Jesus hung out with tax collectors, but he never affirmed extortion. Jesus defended a woman caught in adultery, but he wasn't holding pro-adultery rallies. Affiliation doesn't have to mean affirmation. All throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus walking this line, living in this tense space, never choosing grace or truth, but being consistent and constant in grace and Truth, and it's a tension that eventually got him crucified. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that following Jesus in a post nominal Christian culture necessarily means tension. And I know, let's get human for a minute. I know some of you live in that tension every day. I know some of you experience same sex attraction and you hear a message like we've talked about the last couple of weeks and you're going, Oh, this is so hard. What am I supposed to do about this? I know some of you, if we took a straw poll, which we won't, 
But if I asked you, how many of you know someone or love someone who experiences same-sex attraction or is wrestling with gender dysphoria or is wrestling through whatever version of sexual brokenness you want to put a label on? If I asked you to raise your hand, I guarantee you would be almost 100% in this room. Because we love people. It's not about an issue. What do you do with that? This isn't theory. This is personal Faced with that tension, you've got two choices. You either follow your natural inclination and drift to our natural extremes, or you embrace the tension of following Jesus. And what I'm saying is that Christ-likeness, real hard, beautiful, costly Christ-likeness is formed here in the middle. And it's not easy for me to say, because whether this is you or it's somebody you love, it hurts To that, I want to recommend to you a quote. I know we're being quote-heavy, but he says it better than I could say it. (laughs) This is from C.S. Lewis in a book called The Four Loves. I want to read this slowly. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken if you want to make sure of keeping it intact You must give it to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable. So whether your heart breaks for yourself or someone else or both, This is just me. I'd take a broken heart with Jesus than an unbreakable one without him any day. Let's remember, the heartache of the world is not forever. Catapult to Revelation 21 in your mind where it says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and he will be with us. He will wipe away every tear. Not that every tear will be wiped away, but that Jesus will wipe away Think of what an intimate picture that is. The glorified Son of Man wiping tears from our eyes. That is the hope of the gospel. That we don't find that freedom in this world. You will not. You will not. But if you know Christ, you will. The church that thrives in a post-nominal Christian culture is a church willing to have its heart broken. A church that refuses easy answers and engages hard conversations. A church that loves others with sincerity and clings to God's truth with resolution. I want to be a part of a church like that, and I want to lead a church like that, welcoming good tension. I see a church that is secure enough in the hope of the gospel to welcome the pain of the world. Why? Because I believe that tension embodies the gospel itself where Jesus, full of grace and truth, justice, holiness, love and mercy, God's justice is upheld, is met by, is fulfilled by, is satisfied, the gracious gift of the cross of Christ. And that's commitment number five for us. Cling to the hope of the gospel. And for this, I want to drop into one of my favorite passages, really in all the Bible. Cling to the hope of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. 
Here are Paul's words. I'm going to walk through it. I'm going to talk about it. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What he means is that when I became saved, when Jesus saved me, when he ransomed me, I don't think about people according to worldly categories anymore. I don't have those lenses on my eyes anymore. I don't have that bifurcation that the world has between people. I look at people according to God's categories, is what he says. I'm not, I'm not regarding anyone according to the flesh. Therefore, it allows him in verse 17 to say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Praise God that that can be true. Anyone, anyone, anyone in Christ. They're a new creation. Why? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Well, who started this, Paul? How'd this happen? Is this because we're good? Is this because I'm straight? Is this because I found a really creative way to hide my sin? No. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled the world to himself. What that means is that there is a vertical thing that happened. That I, in my lostness, if I cling to the hope of the cross, that I'm a sinner, lost, worthy of condemnation, but in the cross, God ransomed me, restoring our relationship. I'm not his enemy anymore. He doesn't have to punish me anymore. I'm his adopted son. But then, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Whoa, this just went horizontal. This isn't about you and Jesus anymore. It was about you and Jesus and your world. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, well, tell me about it, Paul, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You are God's plan for reaching your world. Spoiler alert, there is no plan B. Therefore, he says, you love lawyers when they talk. Everything's a Therefore. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What does that mean, Paul? What do I have to believe? For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel. Here's why I love this text. Two reasons. One, because it's just flat out clear gospel. It's just so good. Back in week one, specifically related to same-sex attraction, we said that the gospel is not Jesus came to make gay people straight. The gospel is Jesus came to make sinful people holy. And for the sake of clarity, here's the good news of the gospel, that I have sin worthy of condemnation. And, not but, and Jesus is a worthy sacrifice offering reconciliation. Everyone is ruined by the fall, and anyone can be redeemed by the blood. That yes, we are broken, but we don't have to be defined by our brokenness. That yes, we are dark, but we can be more than our darkness. How is this possible? And it's right there in verse 21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. A blameless son of God, spotless lamb, never did anything wrong, never an impure motive, and then he became sin incarnate for you and me on the cross. All of that was poured on him. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God by Christ and Christ alone. So if you've been following the last couple of weeks, 
and you don't know where you stand before God, let me put Paul's words right in front of you. Be reconciled to God. There is a God who made you, who knows you, who sees you, who loves you. He is slow to anger. He is quick to love. He is full of grace and truth. He has provided his son so that anyone, 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 anyone might be saved. That's the first reason I love this text. Second reason I love this text is because it takes that gospel vision of reconciliation and it makes it missional. I hope when you hear Paul, you hear his tone. He's pleading He's not gritting his teeth. He's not clenching his fists. He's not protesting. This is Pastor Paul's bleeding and beating heart, inviting, begging, calling this church to let the reality of their vertical reconciliation with God spill over into horizontal reconciliation with their world. Can you imagine a people so in love with the gospel that they can't help but love their neighbor? Could you imagine a people so grateful for their reconciliation that they become professional reconcilers? That's their job. Could you imagine what it would look like for a lost and dying world to hear a good word from a church that there is no sin too great, no story too dark, no shame too deep, that Jesus can't bring his healing, restoring, and conquering light? Can you imagine that? I can I want to close out this series um, and I want to turn us to the Lord's Supper by inviting Matt Brumfield up on stage for a minute. Um, Matt is um, a pastor here. A lot of you guys online know him as our online community pastor. But Matt, if you'd, if you'd come and give us your word and then we're going to turn our hearts toward the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine how beautiful at the table of Jesus? The sinner brought near by the blood of the cross. Can you imagine how beautiful at the table of Jesus, the shame of the religious undone by the cross? Can you imagine how beautiful at the table of Jesus, the fear of being known, of struggling alone, undone by the one who knew me on the cross. Can you imagine how beautiful at the table of Jesus, enemies in this world united by his blood? Can you imagine how beautiful at the table of Jesus I am known and I am not alone not alone in struggle not forced out in shame but welcome alongside at the beckoning of grace one step at a time Jesus calls me by name Welcome home, my child. I've saved you a place. So deacons, if you guys have come, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We don't 
say this a lot in anticipation of the Lord's Supper, but Paul was talking about how we should celebrate. He issues a caution. and He says, don't do this in an unworthy way. What he means by that is we should be circumspect. We should take a walk around our life and see if there's anything in me that I need to bring before the Lord before I take of this cup and this bread. Is there anything in me that I need to repent of? Is there anything in me that I need to say, okay, Lord, you just, you just take it, please. And so for right now, I, I do want to caution us as a church. Please do not do what we're about to do with rote memory. Please don't just go through it and think, well, I got to take a, you know, a little piece of bread and a little swig of grape juice just because it's what we do. Don't do that. Please wait and say, okay, I'll, ta- I'll, I'll hold this thing because it's going to get passed to you in just a minute. Please do not take it until you go to the Lord and say, okay, God, speak to me by your spirit. And if you need to repent, take the time to do that, please, in this moment. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.